Thank you, John and Martha. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, I want to thank you, God, for bringing us together this morning in this room and maybe even connecting through a screen. But I'm just thankful, Lord, that you have brought many under the the teaching and the worship, Lord, of, of the one true God. And I pray, Lord, that as we open the scriptures today, that you would bless it, that you would impart to us the knowledge and the and the life, Lord, that we so desperately need. I'm thinking, Lord, this morning of those that can't be with us. I'm praying specifically for Leo and Kathy Bennett, Lord, who have been through a journey lately. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give Kathy comfort and strength and purpose in this journey of her health. And I also pray, Lord, for Elaine Burton, who is faithfully joining us, I'm sure, this morning, Lord, and and just facing those challenges as well. But Lord, we just continue to pray in particular for our sisters in Christ that through these challenges, they would find your peace and your comfort, that they would continue to impact the world around them as they have done so faithfully and so effectively for quite some time. And so Lord, I just pray you continue to have your blessing on them. Bring us to your word, Lord, today in all submission and humility. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have seen the movie some years ago called The Poseidon Adventure. It was about an ocean liner called the SS Poseidon. It was out on the open sea when it hits a tidal wave and it tips over. And because of the air trapped inside the ocean liner, it flips upside down or it floats even upside down. And in the confusion, the survivors can't figure out what's going on. They scramble to get out, most trying to climb the steps to the top of the deck. But the problem is, is the top of the deck is now 100 feet below water. And in trying to get to the top of the ship, they drown. The only ones who make it out are the few who do what doesn't seem to make any sense at all. They do the opposite of what everyone else is doing and descend into the dark belly of the ship until they reach the hull. By going down... They reach the ocean's surface. Rescuers hear them banging, of course, and then are able to cut them free. Sorry for the movie spoiler alert. It's been out for a little while. Should have seen it by now. In marriage, the only way for us to find freedom is to choose what doesn't make sense in the culture around us, to instead lay down our lives for our spouses. We must go down to go up. In particular, this morning, that freedom we will find lies in submission. Men and women have been struggling to find the surface of the ocean for some time, have they not? Our culture is pointing, it's this way, no, it's this way. And we try to see where are the bubbles going, which way do I find to be able to find the air that I need in order to survive as either a man or a woman or a husband or a wife. But what I've found is that most people don't live in all the extremes that we hear plastered all throughout culture. We're not necessarily out there with our picket signs. We're not spending hours upon hours, hopefully, on social media, commenting on everyone's posts to shoot it down and to campaign a cause and all these kinds of things. Most of us are kind of looking at it like, I don't have the freedom in my life to care so much about all these things. I have a job or I have a family or I have gas prices to keep up with or something real is going on in my life that I'm catching the fringe of the argument and as what happens for most of us is as the cultural pendulum swings in heavy heavy swooshes back and forth that we get caught up in that we're not necessarily on the extreme ends but it moves our needle just a little bit we kind of bump over to a certain side or way of seeing things For us, the questions and the struggles of where do we land with this? How do we find our place? Does culture have a point of what we need to change and become? Those things, those questions become very real to us because we're not out just championing a cause that we can't be talked down from. We're trying to figure out how to make it through life. 
And for many in the church, and this has been for quite some time, we are so overly influenced by that pendulum swing of culture that now what the church has is rather than a clear separation of, of philosophy and of language and of practice because of what the gospel teaches us, we are also very much on that pendulum swing and kind of swinging back and forth. And the church is facing a crisis of culture as well. My aim this morning, what I desire to do is to help the honest seeker, not the chronic debater, not the one who just wants to be heard and can't be challenged with any uh, intellectual response or anything. But but the person that comes here that says, if God wants me to be somebody, I don't know how to become that. I don't even know what I'm supposed to become. Help me get there. That is the aim of our time in the scriptures this morning. Now, you just heard the scripture that John and Martha read for us, and and that isn't all of what we'll be talking about today. We're going to break this out into a couple of weeks' worth of material. But coming into the first section in particular in God's instruction for our wives, um, I was challenged a little bit. Do I come at this with a typical tone of apology? I've heard a lot of uh, preachers and, and honest Bible communicators come at this with explaining all the things this doesn't mean right out of the gate. Because we don't want to offend and upset a culture, especially one today's day and age, which is so easily offendable. And so pastors will come into this and say, now hear what this isn't first. I understand the pressure of that. Or some will come in with such a heavy hammer of resistance to culture. Says, I don't care what you think. Thus saith the Lord. You just have to deal with it. And it swings to that side of authority of, of the authority in that. Keeping this in context with what we've been studying in, in Ephesians, I see a brighter tone to what has been received as a very negative teaching. Paul has, has been laying out for us all along all the great things that we have in Christ, that we have new resources, that we have new responsibilities, that we have life that is eternal, that isn't trapped in all the frustrations and the headbanging ends of, of the people of, that are living in darkness. I have no reason to suspect that now all of a sudden he comes to this part of chapter five and says, but I have to deal with some negative stuff here real quick. Let's get this out of the way. I got to say this. Sorry if it stings, but why wouldn't this be in the same tone of everything else that he's presenting? There is a new and better way. Don't give in to the frustration and the futility of the culture around you. Instead, what we need to do is we need to tune our ears and we need to pay particular attention to the culture that Paul is writing to because the volume knob in our life is, I, I, whenever I do that, I'm always picturing those old stereo systems from the 70s, you know, with the big giant knobs and you turn the volume up. We, we turn the volume of two, 2022 up in our life so loudly that we can't hear what God had been saying for centuries. And so sometimes we have to go, okay, I'm going to block out that noise and I've got another volume knob here. So I'm going to actively seek what was Paul saying and to whom was he saying it? The truth is, is that we wouldn't even live in a culture of offense with what we think Paul is saying about wives submit. We wouldn't even be offended by that in our culture had the gospel not taken root over the last many centuries. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that got us sensitive to these issues so that when we come up against it, we say, ooh, I don't know if I like the sound of that. Nobody had a choice before, before Jesus came along. Culture hears a phrase like wives submit and what they hear is woman obey. Men have the authority and the privilege. You shut up and deal with it. That's what culture hears. Wives submit turns into woman inferior. And that's where all the reaction is coming from. First century wives heard something much more positive and life giving. I'm going to just read something out of uh, uh, Barclay here because he kind of sums up for us really well what was going on at the time. This is what the tone was in the first century. The Jews had a low view of women. In his morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man every morning gave thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, you guessed it, or a woman. In Jewish law, a woman was not a person, but a thing. This is not God's ordered law. This was the law that was built on top of that. 
She had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely uh, her husband's possession to do with as he willed. And the situation was even worse in the Greek world. Companionship and fellowship and marriage was impossible. The Greek expected his wife to run his home to care for his legitimate children, be found, uh, but he found his pleasure and his companionship elsewhere. Home and family were near to being extinct, and fidelity was completely non-existent. In Rome, the matter was still worse. That is the culture that Paul is writing these words that in 2022, and actually for many decades prior, we have gotten so offended. Paul is putting women, de- women down when he says this. But they heard, wait, we're being addressed? We're being spoken to? We're people? What we find is a history of Christianity that women flocked to the person and the message of Jesus. That we see all through the Gospels that he showed them priority and, and, and a place at the table. He demonstrated a partnership and an, an inclusion with women, which, as we just read, would have been completely unheard of at the time. And gospel history hinges on the actions and the faithfulness of many women who played very key parts of the story. I don't say this to pander to the female ears in the audience. I'm asking you, when's the last time you heard anything about this? Christianity and women is treated in our culture as Christianity uh, uh, dominates women. That has not been the case, at least not historically. Churches are still disproportionately flooded with women. When it comes to the real voice and character of Jesus Christ, they're more apt to say they pray daily, they attend church weekly. We're even seeing a movement in the Chinese church, which is, which is largely an underground movement because of the laws there, where it's two-thirds attendance is female. No, God has never excluded women. He's never put his thumb down on them. There have been abuses of the church in history that have done that. But that isn't the heartbeat of God in any of this. In truth, almost all advances for women in society, not just in the church, but in society, can be traced to the impact that true followers of Christ have had. Where do, where do we get that from? Well, if we're not mere animals and it's not mere survival of the fittest or who's the strongest in a class, which is the inconsistent teaching of the world, what we find is that God co-created man and woman, that he set her up to be a co-heir of eternal life along with men, and that he has also given her a job to do and made her a co-laborer in the mission that he has come to this earth to accomplish. All of this to say that Christianity doesn't need some new woke approach to show value to women. It just needs to return to its roots in Christ. Paul has been laying out for us in our text here in Ephesians 5 a list of ways that we can and we must imitate Jesus Christ. And we would do well to stick to that theme as we go into this subject. He's been talking to all of us that if we're going to imitate Christ, we're going to practice love, a love that is sacrificial, one that isn't looking to take but is looking to give. That we're going to practice truth. We're going to walk in light and expose the deeds of darkness rather than embracing them. And we're going to practice wisdom, which means we're going to put off folly. We're going to put off the foolishness. And we're actually going to approach our lives intentionally or diligently to find out where his wisdom lies. So in continuing this list of ways to imitate God, that's when he introduces this verse 21 that says submitting that we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Last week, we had said that this um, out of reverence for Jesus Christ means that this mutual submission would be a life that's marked by mutuality, by agreement or showing teamwork with one another or a surrender to one another's opinions and ideas and that kind of thing. Just working alongside with people rather than it always being about who I can manipulate and control in life. All of that can be wrapped up in this tiny little phrase that we can submit to one another. But that isn't all that Paul means, that we all just kind of go around and be like, everybody gets what they want. No, he gets specific and says, in order to accomplish the mission, we have very specific contexts 
that this submission needs to play out things that God takes very seriously. And so getting to the heart of the institution, the life of our society, the life of our church, he goes right for marriage first and says in verse 22 that wives are to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The three points that I want to make this morning are points that could really be genericized. That's not really a word probably, but we could make it apply to all of us, not just specifically to the wives in the room. The last point does actually say something about to your own husband. So we'd have to make sure we're honoring that part. But, but the, the point is, is that these are things, principles that we all live by, but in particular as a wives, we can uh, make personal application as we go through this. And the first is that we need to, and wives need to put Christ's life on display above your own. If I'm talking to the person who says, I want to do what the Lord wants me to be, I want to be made or I want to grow in the fashion of what he's planned for me, how do I do that? It really starts for all of us here, but in particular, it starts for our wives and especially in a culture that says, woman, your identity, your voice, your opinion matters more than anything else. We elevate it because the pendulum swing is going so far in one direction that we need to go out of our way. We need to trip over ourselves to show you that you matter the most. It's not that you're equal. It's now you matter the most because this is what the world does. We overcorrect. We go back and forth and overcorrect. And so out of reverence, or I'm sorry, that if we put Christ's life on display above our own, we are being counter-cultural in a world that says, woman, you just stand up and you elevate you. Your dreams, your desires, your plans, your mind matters more than anything else right now. If you doubt me, watch any advertisements. That is the message that we're getting. You look at any uh, movie heroes uh, these days. That is what that message is. It's an overcorrection to what they seem to see as the problem of our society over the last many decades. And so instead, the life of Christ, and the thing that breaks my heart about that is that's always a recipe for emptiness at the end. I don't care if we were living in what would be considered a woman-dominated culture, and now all the messages about men, you matter, men, you matter, because that's probably coming later. After we go through this, now it's like we got to prop our men back up again and do that. It would be the same destructive information. Make yourself count more than anybody else. What we understand in receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and living to follow him is that he needs to be the star of our story. He needs to be the main character in our plot. We put Christ's life on display instead of our own. This is why Paul said that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, or in other words, in fear of Christ. That doesn't sound very pleasing. What would I, what would I have to be afraid of, Brent? You just got done saying that, that women were flocking to him because they found grace and kindness and compassion and inclusion in his message and all these kinds of things. And now you're saying you have to be afraid of him? I really believe in the context of all that we've been studying, the thing that we should be afraid of is that we wouldn't be willing to follow him, to be an imitator of him in all ways, in particular in submission, even to the point of death and death on the cross, as the scripture says. That somehow we as a culture need to be afraid that we might think we deserve it better than he had it. All of our resistance to this idea of submitting to any authority comes from a place of self-protection and self-autonomy. I should be able to answer for myself and to myself. Even Jesus didn't act that way. He didn't even conduct the mission that way. No, instead the scripture tells us he surrendered to the will of his father and for the need of the people and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. A couple of points I think that will help us with this, especially wives who are struggling in this area or looking for purpose in all of this. The first that we need to understand comes right out of the beginning of our, or our foundational aspect of all things, and that's in Genesis 1. And that's that you are created in God's image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us, God the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the triune Godhead, our to put it in a human terms, having a meeting, 
They're really not. But they're, they're declaring this is what we, us, this is what the Godhead will do. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Hunters this time of year, you love hearing that. I can shoot it because God gave it to me. I'm sorry. I know you ladies also like to hunt. I don't mean to put a rough voice in your in your mouth there. I can shoot it because God gave it to me. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Culture thinks that's where we stop our reading of the scripture. But God continues. Male and female, he created them. Dominion over all things. Priority in the order of creation belongs to them, male and female. So you can already see where Jewish law was starting to get this wrong, that somehow men had the priority in the place of God's vision. But right from the beginning, he said, I made them equal. By including the woman in this, not only is he just saying the way it is, that's the truth, but God's also showing us that this is not about inferiority. They're co-laborers. They have co-dominion over all the things that were put under the man's feet, but they have different roles. Isn't it curious that he didn't also create another probably six foot, 185 pound muscular person like Adam to do the job? Adam wasn't, wasn't missing a companion because he needed co-laborers in the sense of doing the same kind of work. He saw animals two by two. He saw them all having a match, somebody to share this thing with called life. And he said, I don't have any one like me. So God built for him a perfect companion. I like how one writer puts it. There's an ordered equality to this. You are created in God's image and you are also empowered to imitate Jesus. As we get back to our context here in Ephesians five. In perhaps the best passage of scripture or the quintessential passage of scripture that talks about what Jesus submitted to and why. We go to Philippians 2. And in verse 5, it begins by saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That it's been placed within us as followers of Christ. We have this mindset. We have this ability. We have this power to do what? Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to or a thing to just be so preserved that he couldn't step forward in the mission. He would give up that aspect and instead, verse 7, empty himself, putting limitation on himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You may recall when we were in the gospel of John and we were saying where we saw where Jesus said, if, if you pray anything in my name, the father will give it to you. And we said, boy, we got to be careful with that, right? Because it sounds almost like you can just put an incantation at the end of anything you ask God for. You know, I want a yacht and I'm praying for it in Jesus name. So he's going to give it to me because Jesus said what we discovered in studying that passage closer is it really meant if you're do, if you're aligning yourself to the actions the plans and the heartbeat of Jesus that you are praying within his will it's the things he's demonstrated it's the things he's commanded so when we pray for those things we know we're in concert with the will of the father and so Jesus is saying because i've made it clear through the scriptures that you are to imitate me and you are to follow me in all things that i've done then if you're asking seriously for help doing that, I will make sure it gets done. I'll provide the help. I think it would be important, especially for us husbands, to be in prayer for this continued empowerment for our wives. Because as we have, I think, rightly given a lot of attention to the beating that a lot of men have taken in society of not knowing their place anymore because the, the needle is, or the target has moved all over the place. In fact, I was talking with, um, 
I was messaging back and forth with Laura Corette this week. Laura leads our women's ministry, and she has a faithful team around her. And just reaching out to her and said, are you tracking with this kind of in the pulse of the women in the church? And I'm about ready to talk to her wives about submitting to their husbands and stuff. Like, can you give me, you know, sort of your female perspective on how all this goes? And she put a lot of thought and care and crafted some response to me and everything. And But mostly I was encouraged at how well all of this tracked with what she was seeing and motivated to have our women see in the church. In one particular com- com- conversation she was having with another lady in the church, she said that that person pointed out, you know, it's not just a challenge for the wives to figure out. Our men have taken such a big hit, they don't even know how to help the wives get there sometimes. That they don't even understand their role and their character and their conduct anymore because the world has led them astray so much. And I think Laura rightfully, rightly put it that uh, the thing that clears that up and what helps our women so much is when they see that their allegiance and their responsibility is to the authority of Jesus Christ. Rather than it just being about the up and down nature or the fluctuating skills or abilities or faithfulness of a particular man. Guys, we need to be praying for our wives to be empowered to stand up against the attacks of culture because it isn't just us who have lost our way. Right now, the world is coming for the minds and the hearts and the affections of our ladies. We can always see that we have three enemies in this world. That we have the world itself, that system that moves against the will and the heartbeat and the knowledge of God. We have the devil who is a real person and orchestrates all the mechanisms and the attacks against uh, God and his church. And then we have this thing called our flesh that we still can't get rid of until we are at home with God in glory. That every day we wake up is warring, is raging a war inside of us to to build a kingdom of its own and to resist the uh, influence of an all-knowing, all-loving God. When we start strategizing and think, well, if I know my enemy, then maybe I have an advantage. Then who, what is my enemy doing? We've, we've talked over and over about the culture and sort of the attack that's coming from there. But have you stopped and thought about what would the devil have to do with any of this stuff about picking on genders and erasing the lines and getting rid of distinctions? And now we can't say that femininity is beautiful or powerful. And we have to just say they can do everything that men can do. And, and guys have to be more like that and all this kind of stuff. Why would the devil even care? and monkey with all of this stuff. We go back to what we saw in Genesis 1, that he is attacking the image of God. That God made us in distinction and set us with purpose so that we would demonstrate to the world that we would be like a mirror of his character, his love and his nature to the world of what he is about and what he is doing. And Paul even says later on, as we get there, it was read for us earlier that even the institution of marriage is an image, is a, is a, is a mirror of what God has done to rescue his bride, who is the church. If Satan can attack all of those images which welcome us sinners to, to, uh, to salvation, if he can monkey with all of that, then he, start, he feels as though he's starting to win the battle. He takes a knock out of God's glory because all that this is intended to portray is how great, gracious, and loving God really is. All of this has a strategy to it. Why does our flesh get involved and why do we care so much? Because we attack submission because autonomy and answering to ourselves matters more than anything else. I was out on, this is always like a, sounds like a confession. It should be. I was out on YouTube this week. Everyone should say that kind of a confession. Yeah, I went and did that this week. I was out on YouTube because I was kind of just putting in like wives submit to husbands. I wanted to see what kind of stuff is out there. And uh, maybe there'd be a little vignette or some kind of illustration or something like that. But I was pleased to see there were a lot of especially um, Christian wives out there with their own channels inside of talking about the, the biblical view of, of submission and everything. And so that was all great and good. One guy had a, um, a clip of a girl who didn't really claim to be a Christian. She just claimed to be more of a traditionalist. And so she was like, I still do this role of like submission and different things like that. And I work hard to please the the husband in my life and all these kinds of things. And of course, her thing went viral because everyone's like, you're killing feminism and you're doing all that sort of stuff. Well, I scrolled down and looked at the comments that this of the video this guy posted and 
almost all the comments were very supportive of her doing what she felt led to do. But they all seem to have this little part in there, which I think is the subtle attack that we sometimes don't think about. It's not so much that people can't pick a thing and do it. That's what we're supposed to all be about today, right? It's that you have the choice. As long as you have the choice, then we can back anything you want to do. You see, it all comes back to, I answer to me. I don't want God telling me what to do. I don't want him telling me how to do it. As long as I see the value in doing something, if it happens to line up with, with what God described, then great. But that isn't why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I chose to. And even the world can get behind and applaud that. You can wear little house on the prairie dresses. You can have fresh bed, bread baking in your kitchen and do all that homemaker sort of traditional stuff of the, of the earlier time periods and stuff. And they'd be like, that's fine as long as that was your choice and not some guy making you do that. Of course, I'm not advocating for some guy making you do that. I hope you've been hearing that all along. All of that is in point number one. Let's move to point number two. <sighs> I might need a nap after this one. (laughs) Secondly, we need to put Christ's mission above our own. In particular, when it comes to our wives, I feel like marriage can be the most dream shattering event in so many ladies lives because it's sort of part and parcel of our, their nature, our culture and everything, at least until these recent generations where a wedding was dreamed of and magazines were sold and dresses were imagined and in a, a happily ever after existence and everything was very prominent only to be reminded of the fact that, oh, this is a real people, a real person with real issues and real struggles and real failures. If we're not careful, we set ourselves up to have our own interests, our own mission in mind. This is what I need for marriage to provide for me. My wife and I will both admit readily, anybody who wants to hear the story, uh, that that is what our failures were. We were lifelong Christians, met officially, formally in Bible college and knew one another's families and just had this great sense of like, hey, we're a good pick for each other and all these kinds of things. And we were in love and all that sort of stuff and all through engagement and everything. Now, I'm going to blame Chris the most because she thought I walked on water. So she built an ego in me that she had to deal with later. It didn't need a lot of scratching below that surface, if you know what I mean. So, But we had our own agendas and we didn't realize it until we got married. We had pre-marriage counseling. The pastor helped us as best as he could. And we're like, yeah, you know, but inside I'm thinking, I got this. I've been in Christianity forever. I'm going to be a preacher. I know the Bible. I could teach the Ephesians 5 passage probably terribly, but I could do it, you know, all this kind of stuff. And and I was like, she's a, you know, she's just fun, loving, happy-go-lucky, just easygoing girl. She thinks I walk on water. This guy got it made. I had no idea how much her uh, uh, dreams and interests and what her expectations were because I didn't take any time to find out. And I don't think she knew mine because I didn't, and she didn't take any time to find out. And we clashed and clashed in that first year of marriage in a surprising and shocking fashion. And, and, and coming to find out that she was thinking, man, I married the wrong guy. And I'm like, no, I'm the guy that walks on water. I'm not wrong. It took two people who love us and care about us and and function for us like parents away from home to pull us aside each to our own corners and get some of these principles across and basically say, you know, when, when Paul says that you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church or you are to submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ, what he's saying is there is a bigger picture for you to honor than the one of your own expectations and demands. This isn't about what you expected to get out of it. It isn't about what it's supposed to provide for you. You came in supposed to have want desire to honor the picture that God has laid out for us to obey. If it wasn't for the intervention of that couple, I don't know if we would be anywhere near where we are today. I honestly believe that we were rescued from ourselves in those interventions. And if you find yourself still banging your head going, I don't know what we're getting wrong. Rescue yourselves under the power of the Holy Spirit and understand what I'm saying to you. If you can drop your expectations, this is why I hate, now I'm on a rant. I hate those um, uh, uh, matchmaking sites that are all built on personality traits. You're going shopping for someone that you want. 
Do you see how wrong that is of a starting position? I need you to be what the checklist said you would be. And you're not being this. Well, I lied. I wanted you to take me. (laughs) That doesn't happen on the internet. Neil Clark Warren, when he started eHarmony, and even James Dobson at the time was partnered with him. I just remember going, he was like, this is what, 37 uh, points of compatibility. I'm like, no, don't do this. It's going to destroy the church. We don't, we don't get into this to honor our own expectations or, to, or, or demands. All right, back to the life-giving stuff. Good news for our wives. You are assigned to your your husband. I put the word assigned in there on purpose because it's a little bit abrasive and offensive, isn't it? We hear assigned and it's instantly chained or latched around your ankles. You're going to get dragged around by him. But again, first century hearer, what they heard was you're not subject to every man in your community. You've only got one responsibility under your roof and it's your husband. You're not bound by all this male chauvinism and property stuff and all these kinds of things. Listen, woman, you count and you have a responsibility, a diligence and a duty to one man, not all in general. It's crazy how we've allowed this stuff to just get filtered out of our thinking, isn't it? Paul has already said this to Galatia and the Galatian here is he says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ. Boy, doesn't he sound like a bigot? And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You are assigned to your husband and to your husband alone. Let that free you, please. You are designed, uniquely equipped for your husband. We go back to the creation account back in Genesis. We're trying to figure out where did all this start from? In Genesis 2. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heaven, and to every beast of the field. He was getting the job done. It's not that he needed help with the labor per se in that particular area. What he started feeling was loneliness. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs. And there's been some that have speculated that he took him from his side as a metaphoric thing. She is side by side of me. I don't know if that's true, but I think that's a pretty helpful application for how we see God treat the whole relationship. That it wasn't a foot he took or it wasn't a jawbone or a you know, skull piece or something like that. That he took it from Adam's side and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last one that's just like me, but a little bit different in all the right ways. This is bone of my bone. She's not, you know, some other creature that I've been dealing with and naming and all these things. She's like me. She's structured like me. She's flesh of my flesh. She came from me. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, not walk 10 steps in front of her as the culture had started to do, not to treat her like that owned property, but instead cling to cleave to bring her to his side once again, where she came from. They shall become one flesh. She was put to bring companionship to Adam, to bring help to Adam. And again, it's kind of like, well, I don't want to just be some dude's helper. Culture keeps telling me that that's just me being passive and a doormat. It's weakness. There's no use to it and everything. But we got to remember, this is who God is to his people. So many passages, but in particular, Psalm 54, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. What we'll see going forward is that This guy that you married, his mission is a very tall order. And he's going to need the help. I know that you women are already convinced of that. No, no, no. You don't have to tell me twice. I know he needs help. And I'm with you. We're all with you, right, guys? But it's not because we're picking on our men. They're inferior. They have no skills. They don't bring anything. We bring different things. And the things that you bring, you notice his deficiencies right away. That's where you fit that gap, that space. Oh, I got to do the Rocky impression, don't I? 
You know, you remember the Rocky movie? I, I still, I went back to try to find this because I, I heard this illustration before. I went back to try to find this. I still can't. So that's your assignment. Go back and watch the Rocky movies and see where he says this because I want to pinpoint this. But, but Polly, you know, um, what's her name's, uh, uh, Adrian's brother is saying, you know, because Rocky's a stud and everything like that, and she's like a hermit. She's just kind of closed in. She doesn't want to, you know, and she's just real nerdy and everything. And he's like, you know, Rocky, you and my sister, I don't get it. What's going on here? He's like, well, you know, I, I, I look at it like this, you know, I, I, I got gaps. You know, she got gaps. We, we get together, there ain't no gaps. <laughs> Thank you. My mother's convinced. I want to. I want to hear that, but I don't have time. So, no. <laughs> my mother's convinced. I only became a preacher so I could have a captive audience. But anyway. <laughs> Lastly, we are to put Christ's authority. Wives, you are to put Christ's authority over your husbands. The reason why I say we and that this is generally applied is we have to put Christ's authority over anybody else in our life. But in particular for our wives, it's not his authority and his alone that you're living for or submitting to. Paul had said in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. I've seen some try to explain away this phrase that he's the head of the wife by saying, well, really what it means is it's like a source. He's the source of it's like the brain is the source of life to the rest of the body. And, and that may be true to some extent, but their study doesn't quite match up with what I think the intent is. Again, I think the intent is to soft pedal this so that women aren't offended that it actually might mean what we think it means on the surface that God might be saying he is the authority in your home. No, we can't say that. Because we know what men have done with authority. And if I had as much time as I've had already, I could trace out all the reasons why women have every reason to twitch and be like, no, no, don't say authority. It goes wrong in society when men feel like I have the authority. But what is the authority that Jesus perpetuated through his actions and his gifting all along? It was all about responsibility. Jesus' responsibility for you and me led him to the cross. It led him to lay it all down. So authority, yes, means that there is a sense in which he's calling the shots, but he does it in a responsible way, knowing that it's my life that's, that's on the hook that needs to be sacrificed here so that yours doesn't have to be. This as Christ is, is the key to all of this. I wish I could take the time to give you some examples like when Jesus was with James and John and his mother's like, let them sit on your right hand and your left and honor them. And Jesus is like, you know, I'm going to, to die, right? That it isn't all about who gets to sit at my right hand and my left and everything. He says, are you willing to follow in the footsteps that I'm following? Oh yeah, we can. He goes, well, you will. You just don't know what you're signing up for. This is all about sacrifice. It's all about payment. It's all about laying it down. You want the title you want the prestige, but you don't want the road that it's going to take to get there. Wives, you are responsible only for your part in this. There is a headship that your husband answers to that you don't have to take that same responsibility. You want to help him get there. You want to support his efforts to get you all there to cross that finish line. But at the same time, Jesus has protected you from ultimate responsibility for the way this whole thing goes. So Paul says, as the church submits to Christ, and that's to a perfect leader, and that's hard enough to do, right? But he says to submit to him in everything. This is where we need a little bit of balance. I know we're running a little bit long, and so just need you for a few more minutes. If I take these statements in isolation, I can say, well, that means that what Paul's saying is everything he says you have to do. But we have, this is why we let scripture interpret the rest of scripture and inform all the ways that we approach these principles because God has never um, lightened up on the authority that the church has to step in on situations that are abusive or destructive for somebody's life. And we even have a government that you can call the police if he's, you know, getting out of hand and all those. So God has ordained all of those institutions and authority for you to take full re, uh, resource with. 
So Paul isn't saying, oh, I forgot that. No, I forgot that what I just wrote to the church over here was that that the church has authority and that they can step in and they can help those who need assistance and everything. I thought they were just supposed to be um, mind-numb robots who just keep taking it from these abusive men. But that isn't the balance of Scripture. I, I think what Paul is trying to help us hit, out here with is that submission is more about finding a way to support the good than finding just any excuse to get out of it. In other words, Paul might be saying, look, I know what you're saying is you want an excuse. This guy messed up and hey, this isn't what I signed up for. Particularly if we go back to those dreams and visions you had of a perfect marriage and now it's not playing out. You know, never, never doubt your heart that you can start a list of, of uh, disgruntlements that that's all you see in this guy now. He messed up this and he messed up that and he doesn't do this and everything. And Paul is protecting us from our own hearts saying, look, you need to find a way to find the good in this man to find some of the things that he's doing right and get behind those things while you're not endorsing or just turning a blind eye to the negative or the bad things. I don't think Paul's advocating here for blind obedience, but a desire to help the right thing. So I'll just say that again. This is our key point that submission is more about finding a way to support the good than it is finding an excuse to get out of it. The human heart really wants things both ways. Husbands want the authority without the responsibility. They hear Jesus say, Hey, you're the head of the house. And in our hardness of heart, we think, you mean I get to call the shots and I don't need to care what they think about it. It's not the truth. It's not the way Jesus did it. He wants you to have the authority, but he wants you to find it through the responsibility of sacrifice. A wife wants all the security that having a marriage can offer without the vulnerability that it requires to get there. If I'm going to trust that I can submit to the will of some other human being, I know they're going to fail me. I know they're not going to be as perfect as Jesus. If I don't do this with Jesus as my for, uh, my forethought or my goal in all of this, then I'm going to get, I'm going to get taken advantage of. There's a vulnerability towards it. That's why it's called stepping out in faith. Just wrapping this up, let's look at it this way. This is not an exact science. I like the phrase that we discovered in verse 10 over the last couple of weeks that we are to discern the will of God. It takes practice. It takes effort. We have to put it differently in our own context. How is this going to work out? All of it, though, should be supported and undergirded by grace, grace, grace. Never forgetting that that's what we're trying to show to each other as we grow together. Now the scriptures talk about the unequally yoked situations that sometimes we find ourselves in. Sometimes people get married and they say, I don't really know if that person's a believer, but they're not telling me I can't go to church or maybe I got saved later in life. And that wasn't our journey when we got together. Now I'm the only one following Christ. And so he doesn't want to do that. Or somebody might say, well, I'm getting ready to find a spouse and that's not really the highest thing on my list that they're a church growing, uh, going, growing, committed person. I just want him to treat me nice and then I'll hope to influence them to follow the Lord later on. Those kinds of situations are the things that we find ourselves in. And I just want to under, help underscore, doesn't this seem hard enough to do for two people that really want to do it God's way? I mean, there's a whole room full of people that just want to obey God. And is it easy? It's really tough. Let alone you add into the equation somebody who doesn't have the same chain of command that you have in your life. They're not trying to do things that God has spelled out for them. They don't have that concern following them around like you got to please God in all of this. How much more difficult does that get? But God in his ever hopeful way gives us support and grace for the unequally married. I'm encouraging you if you look at your notes and some of the tips that you can do throughout the week. I'm encouraging you to spend some time, both husband or wife in first Peter three, uh, would have loved to have had the time to get through some of that today. But really what Peter is emphasizing here is that it's about your behavior, not about your manipulation or not about your angling to try to just get him to care about God and all these kinds of things. And I, I can tell you because there are so many faithful women in our congregation, in our midst that have struggled with how to actually do that, that it isn't all the words I can preach to him, but it's in my behavior and the ways that I support and show him submission and things like that. 
that they have been successful and the Lord has been very honored in their attempts. And those examples are out there. But it starts with a willingness to to discover that. If you're not yet married and you think that maybe that these things are up for grabs and not re- doesn't really matter. It has other things to do with like, is he, does he have a good job? Is he a provider? Does he want the same number of kids as me and stuff? The religion stuff will come later. Let me warn you. That would be like, like saying, well, um, I want to jump on an NFL field. If you guys have been watching the Patriots lately, you know, you want to go up against Matthew Judon, who's just this imposing hulk of a figure and just effective and fast and everything. Be like, someone, someone said that I could have a shot at winning the game if I went up against him. And hey, worst comes to worst, at least they have emergency rooms. You know, it's like going into that mindset of what's the worst that can happen? Someone can put me back together. It's like going into it knowing that you're most likely going to take a beating and it's most likely going to cost you so much. But yet, hey, that's what, that's what the church is there for. Later on, they'll put us back together. It doesn't always work out that way. But primarily to my married sisters in Christ, I want you to see, and I think Paul wants you to see, that this is not a loss of beauty and effectiveness to dedicate yourself to the support and the help and the companionship of your husband, but a reclaiming of that beauty and power. So show the short-sighted world around us what the lasting power of Jesus looks like through your actions and your dedication. Show your husband what a treasure he has in you as you follow your Savior's lead. Even if he doesn't know where this is coming from or why, even if he doesn't claim to know the same God you follow, let him see the impact of that. And perhaps, and even maybe, his heart will be changed towards the things of the Lord. And we'll be praying for you in that journey. Right, men? Guys are like, oh, what? Uh, football? When's the game? Uh. All right. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you, Father, for... Thank you for getting us. Thank you, Lord, for knowing how difficult it is to do these things. But also, Lord, thank you for showing us that our generation really isn't any different in its challenge from the previous ones. We've invented new ways and more clever ways or more technologically advanced ways to deny you and to brush off your help in our lives. But, but really it's the same heart of the human uh, person that, that wants to do things their own way, wants to find self-satisfying ways of going about their life. And so, Lord, we often find your instruction to us as an invasion. Help us, Lord, to be broken of that. Help us, Lord, to see that your beautiful submission to your Father's will was what we needed for our salvation. And give our dear sisters, Lord, the strength and the wisdom and the technique in ways in which they can bring that same Christ-like beauty into their marriage. Thank you for blessing so many marriages in this church already with that spirit and those attempts. And pray that it would only educate and encourage the others who are learning to do the same. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.